on the Wake Up Radio. I am your host, Joel Saji. Make me free. On the Wake Up Radio, I'm your host, Joel Saji. You're listening to Make Me Free. Shout out to our super producer, Sidney Ashby. You can call in live as well at 844-818-4433. It is $2.99 per minute. You must be 18 years older to participate. You can catch our replays also on OTW2, Google, Apple Products, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Our new website is up, otwtube.com, where it's free speech, friendly, no censorship, and you can sign up today. Also, please donate to $5 or any amount, which will go directly to our website and airtime. It is a labor of love, but we still live in a costly world. We have to be for real. And if you appreciate the free content, please help us keep the message uncensored and free, and you can donate through PayPal at onthewakeupradio at gmail.com. And again, you can donate through on the wake up radio at gmail.com. We want to thank you all for tuning in and listening in tonight. I'm faithful and those new to the scene uh, tonight's topic. And as well, we do have a special guest in the house tonight. Yusuf Rahman Suda. How you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Wonderful to know. Wonderful to know. Uh, Yusuf hails from the city of Las Vegas out here. Um, but is well born in Africa. Is that correct? My ancestors are born in Africa. Yeah. Okay. Well, there it is. That's where my ancestors from. From ten. Well, my my family comes from the east coast of Africa, which is now called Tanzania, which was previously called Tanganyika. Thank you for that. I kind of like heard that uh, correction of what they're calling it now. Can you repeat that for those unknown? Sure. The country's previous name was Tanganyika at the presidency of Julius Nyeri. The country then took on the name of Tanzania because of the provinces, the island off of the east coast, which is called Zanzibar, is now a part of the mainland, which is um, which was previously called Tanganyika, so it resulted in the combined name of Tanzania. Or Tanzania, okay, either one. Tanzania, yeah, I did heard that mm-hmm. name, Tanzania. Thank you for that mm-hmm. educational piece. Yeah. Um, now, again, uh, you are well known. You've uh, been throughout Africa, visiting, uh, studying, uh, traveling uh, through the comedic science, uh, learning information. I believe I have here uh, where you actually did a uh, travel to Cairo to the to the pyramids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, you want to give us a little give give us a uh, history on that a little bit if you can? Sure. Well, my my wonderful wife actually encouraged me to uh, go with her during the second her second trip. She went to study comedic yoga with Yasir Hotep uh, some years or so prior, a year or so prior to my going. But she insisted that I go um, on my I do believe it was my seventeenth fifth or 74th birthday she insisted that i go so i did so and it was one of the most informative experiences that i have had i'm 
I'm an architect by profession as well. So for me, uh, it was not only informative, but I got an opportunity to experience looking at um, eight to 10 to 20,000 year old construction that informed me in a totally different way than my studies and looking at it in books because I witnessed columns that were 75 to 90 feet high, depending upon where we were. And the columns at the base were large, so very large that you might have to take five to six to seven, eight people uh, hand in hand to get around the base of the column. That's how large they were. And what was wonderful to me is that I didn't witness anything um, on in the country that was related to death. Everything was related to life. Now, for example, the columns were made of stone, mm -hmm. but you could see that they were actually sculptures of living plants. They weren't like the Roman columns or the Greek columns, were just simply edifices to hold up a building. These were pictorial representations in stone of two different plants, one of which were papyrus, the other which was a lotus. And all of the columns were exactly that. Uh, there was writing and carvings on each of the columns, which was magnificent because what it indicated that there was information there that you, if you could read it, a lot of the answers that you might be looking for historically concerning how life was during that time were actually written, but you couldn't read it because you could not translate it. And I looked at columns, um, as I said, 75 to 90 feet in high that had stone lintels that between them that were holding uh, braced by stone lintels, which stretch over from one column to the next. And those mm -hmm. columns are still level. They're still perfectly level. Uh, it was just a magnificent experience. So it was extraordinary. We went on a property that took 2000 years to construct. Now to give you an idea of what I mean is that it means that if the construction was completed, was started at the birth of Yahshua and Joseph, which most people call Jesus Christ. If it was started on his day of birth, today he would only be 21 years old because it took that long, 2,000 years for it to be constructed. That mm. edifice would only be 21 years old if it was started at the birth of Yahshua ben Joseph. So it was just a wonderful, magnificent, all-encompassing experience as an architect and as a visitor, watching and seeing things that uh, I'd seen a lot of photographs of, but had never witnessed in real life. So just a marvelous experience. We went down the Nile. Uh, we just had <laughs> an experience that does not lend itself to description, not verbally anyway. So just wonderful. Now that was uh, the land of the Pharaoh's tour of uh, ancient Egypt, I believe, correct? They did have a tour that we also went on that was also part of the land of the pharaohs. But there were several uh, tours and various kinds of things that we interacted with that did not involve pharaohs necessarily directly, but we did go to some of the subsequent um, burial sites of pharaohs. There were one, two, three, four that we could visit. There were about another 63 or 62 that had not been opened yet in the land of the, in the um, land of the kings. Just amazing but when you go into the the burial sites the beauty of the burial sites the entire 
inside of the burial sites were just extraordinary. It was like walking in the side of um, of a temple, not a tomb, but a temple. Just colors were beautiful. The carvings were magnificent. It had stood up to time in a way that you certainly would not have expected as if it had been done just maybe some uh, few years prior to our arrival. It's beautiful. Thank you for that. And I just wanted you to just I just wanted you to give us just a brief synopsis of that and showing the beauty and the architectural work and the design and the knowledge that we once obtained um, yes. at just a merely of uh, just a mirror of ease. It was just yes. a mirror of ease that we took uh, up yes. on that uh, versus today's um, way of thinking and going about uh, uh, life is totally maybe a whole 180 flip from that now. Well, that has something to do with where we are. It has something to do with how we got to be where we are and the circumstances of our being here. It isn't, we cannot measure the um, ethos and ethics and spirit and energy of who we are versed upon where we are. If we do that, then we're confusing uh, the truth and what it really means in a larger framework than just the adventure that we've experienced here because nothing here, nothing of our presence here has been endearing. Nothing of our presence here has been such that it's something we should look forward to or that we can find ourselves here as a place of good fortune. We have been on a plantation and there's nothing grateful or gracious about living on a plantation. I'm glad you kind of like mentioned the word plantation at this point, because I have yes. something to say. And then I also want to introduce uh, tonight's topic as well. That kind of like okay. coincides with what you're talking about. Sure. Um, tonight's title of the show is called actually what have we, well, we haven't won a damn thing. Okay. In spite of the, uh, uh, the decision that was given uh, in the case of George Floyd's murder uh, mm -hmm. that was taped, um, and spread around the world. Uh, definitely shout out uh, and condolences out to him and his family. Uh, but with the now said uh, verdict that was given off for uh, guilty of the said person, Derek uh, Calvin, I think I'm saying that, I hope I'm saying mm -hmm. that right. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, what actually have we won that everybody is celebrating and dancing and hoopla and all about and barbecuing and having a good time about? What, what actually have we won in retrospect to that verdict? Well, that's a good question. The question is, what have we won? Well, nothing that I know of except the idea that somehow for the first time, in spite of qualified immunity of a police officer, that that qualified immunity has been looked upon as been a an injustice in this particular case because qualified immunity, for those who may not know, is that a police actually has the ability to carry out his quote unquote um, mission. And if that involves the murder or assassination or death of someone, he actually rests above the law based upon the law of qualified immunity, which means that under the circumstances of his duty, he has an immunity above the crime that allows him to be adjudicated differently than a typical civilian. So qualified immunity is a protection for police officers in the event that a person dies, that police officer is automatically assumed to have carried out, carry out his duties according to the law. 
So when we look at uh, Brother Floyd's uh, death, we're just witnessing a police officer carrying out in his mind his duty, which is why we had several young people since his death being murdered. And I do mean murdered. I don't mean justifiably killed. That's murder. And it's no other way to look at it in my view. Now, so mm -hmm. there's no reason in my view to kill a, uh, a child. He's running away. Why would you shoot a child in the back? Why would you, you know, render a child dead simply because of a infraction on the child's part? You're not being fired at by the, by the, by the uh, young person. So why would you kill him? And in Floyd's case, there's no reason to have uh, rendered this man dead because you thought that somehow he was a threat to you. How could he be a threat with a policeman around you? He's handcuffed and so on and so forth. So having said all of that, what are we uh, looking as a victory? Uh, the man's dead. That's not a victory, in my view. But mm -hmm. the idea that somehow the police officer could or would be arrested for the crime and adjudicated by a jury that this was a criminal act, okay, that's fine. But let's look at Emmett Till. When he was killed, he was killed when he and I were about the same age. He was just a few years older than I. And we had him. He was murdered. Uh, and he was, <laughs> the people who killed him, admittedly killed him, were let go. And the lady who accused him of the crime in her 80s subsequently said that she lied. But we have a dead child. Now, that's not to mention all of the young men and men and women who were hung or lynched or whatever the case might be or shot or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And somehow, I don't get it. What is the celebration? Thank you for that. It's kind of, I want to say that you're saying as well that uh, George, well, not George, but Derek in this case, uh, acted within that time of being filmed judge and jury. Yes. Whenever a police officer kills someone, he's making a decision to be an enforcer, to be the judge, and also having been the jury. He's adjudicating the situation above the law. At that particular time. And he can at do that, that particular at will. Moment. That's right. And he can well, do that at will. That's correct. Thank you for clearing that up. Yes. All right. So in, in conjunction to that as well, what would be your definition of justice? And in spite of everything that's going on, that's being uh, through marginalization um, and things well, of that matter, you know, people being viewed as inferior, inferior. Um, what would be your definition? basically, of justice. Let me ask you that. Justice, justice through implication has to do with the idea there is something called human fairness, that something will be judged or adjudicated on the basis of the information concerning the incident or the circumstance. Now, there's a substantial difference between the law, right, and justice. If you say, for example, that in this country, the framework of this country suggests that you will always be adjudicated fairly on the basis of the evidence. But a police officer doesn't approach justice in that manner. He makes the assumption that everybody around him is a suspect. And he views the civilians as a suspect. That is, that they are guilty of something in advance of the information that proves or disproves 
that they have committed a crime. Justice by its very nature implies that there is an idea of fairness on the basis of the evidence. But do realize that every country has its own framework of what justice is or is not. Therefore, justice is, by virtue of the definition, will change on the basis of the political framework or laws of a given nation. In this country, fair play is considered that all men will be adjudicated before the law properly based upon evidence. That would logically be justice. But in the case of what we have experienced as a people, we find that the law only applies in a particular way to just us. And that particular way has very little, if anything, to do with fairness. Thank you for that. Uh, I want to touch on a question uh, that I had kind of like set up uh, pre uh, to our conversation here now. Sure. Um, the, the African Holocaust is happening in America. Uh, kind of yes. like grab it from uh, your page on your Facebook page. Um, and yes. I also had that link on my uh, on my on the Wake Up Radio uh, platform as well. Our homepage, you can uh, find that link to uh, Yusuf's uh, Facebook page. But mm -hmm. and still in all. The African mm -hmm. Holocaust is happening in America. Yes. Uh, what is the Holocaust uh, in definition? And the African, uh, in this case, Black, Moor, Afro, etc., are not being one, are not taken as real or face value. How, what is the what is actually the definition of Holocaust first? Well, you answer anything. So Holocaust basically has to do with the effort on the part of a group of people against another group of people to render them dead in large numbers, okay? Or to uh, forcefully take their lives. Obviously, no one gives permission to take their lives. But to take their lives under a set of circumstances, politically motivated to carry out an objective for the group or the nation that feels that they can or should get rid of those people. So it's a idea that genocide is relation to a holocaust a holocaust that is to eliminate the life take the lives of large numbers of people for the sheer sake of the idea that you dislike them or you have a bias against them or you have some viewpoint that is actually okay to kill them explain the african holocaust happening in america today well we 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 didn't come here first and foremost because we were bothered where we live People migrate to a place willfully if they're dissatisfied with where they were. Africans were not dissatisfied with Africa. They were accosted, kept in castles for distribution, separated, and then subsequently shipped to this country and other countries in and around the world. Now, if that, that being true, we are involuntary migrants to a country of not of our choosing. If we understand that, embrace that, then the only thing we've experienced here is holocaustic behavior to control, get rid of, or prevent us from being the quality of human beings that we are. That's all that has happened. But that's a lot. Because it meant that for from 1619, which is the first point of demarcation time-wise of our landing here to the present 
year, this day, at this time, and we're still having young men killed like George, like Emmett, like Medgar Evers, like Dr. King, like Malcolm, like Gabriel Prosser or Nat Turner, or being enslaved on plantations where the only thing that we could do was work, and we were treated as chattel property, meaning that we were owned as property by someone who said that they could and did own us, and therefore we could not return back to the place that we left and we did not leave voluntarily. That All of that is an indication that our lives have not been sacred to other human beings, and we certainly have not been treated as human beings for the obvious reason. Therefore, we all are, many of us are descendants of people who have been treated horribly by a group of people who sanctioned and allowed it to take place and then wants to suggest to us that somehow we did something wrong. No, all you had to do was leave us alone. That's all that needed to happen. Good point. Uh, let's probably go on this question as well. Um, the illusion of inclusion uh, with the recent case of the young mm -hmm. gentleman pulled over in uniform, I believe in uh, Virginia somewhere, on his way mm -hmm. home from the training mm -hmm. exercise for deployment and mm -hmm. was stopped, pepper sprayed, thrown to the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, clear case of uh, discrimination. Uh, total, this is like just total hate blatantly. Um, yeah. This illusion of inclusion, even with this uniform on, kind of like sets the tone for what? Well, any group of look. <laughs> Let's, let's, let's go back a bit. Let's talk about some things that precede that. Firstly, there's very few people in this country can deny that this country, the land, this large landmass called, called presently the United States, right? First of all, it wasn't a body of states. It was just simply a landmass. Mm -hmm. And the people who occupied this landmass got the misrepresentation of being called something that they were not because of the stupidity of a supposed adventurer, i.e. sailor, named Columbus. And because he thought he was going to India, when he arrived here, he thought he was in India and subsequently called the people here Indians. Well, that's a misnomer and that's a lie. But that tag has stayed on the natives of this country. Now, you take in addition to that, you say, okay, what is it that is trying to be achieved by the persons who took the country? The only thing that's trying to be achieved by the persons who took the country is to take the country and then take the land and utilize the land for their own purposes. The colonization of this country by the Europeans and subsequently driving the natives of this country back, who actually received them, openly as human beings, thus the whole idea of Thanksgiving and the fact that the natives of this country taught Europeans how to live in this country because between 1492 up to the 1600s into the 1700s, most of the people that came to this country died. Large colonies, large groups of people, Europeans died. The natives of this country, in many instances, taught them how to survive. Now, these stories are told in our elementary school books how this wonderful group of people here taught them how to survive, taught them how to plant, taught them how to do a million things, how to hunt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then the people who were their host, the people who they hosted turned around and killed the host. 
Well, that's an insanity. That's an indication that the ethics of the people who turned around and killed the person who helped them slaughtered them. Now, we take these things and we look at them in all honesty. The question is, what is actually trying to be achieved by the persons who took the property? Then you bring African people here. You steal the land. You slaughter the people that were here. You then steal a group of people from their land, bring them here to work the fields because you don't have the capability of managing those fields. Now, somewhere in the, between 1619 and 1776 in the formulation, going from the Articles of Confederation to what subsequently became the Constitution, and that Constitution says that all men are created equally. However, the African is not considered to be a person because in order to further the continuity of the country and there are large bodies of people, we cannot, i.e., indicate that the African is a person. So the idea of the three-fifths of a man adjudication means that we can count three-fifths of an African. So he's not a man. We do not have to treat him as a citizen. And, and as a result, we don't have to treat him as a person. But we can use the population of several million people to count voting structure so that the subsequent states will have voting power based upon three-fifths of a man or three-fifths of their African population. Now, take all of that. You put all that together. And let's go from that to the Civil War. Let's go after the Civil War that we say, okay, these people under Reconstruction, they can have the right to vote. And we say, well, now that we've gained the right to vote, we now are consider ourselves citizens. Well, here's the insanity of that. If you and I were driving, and I said to you, Joel, uh, you're in the car, you're driving? Just, yeah, okay. I said, Joel, I'm going to go into the store here, and I am going to rob the store. When I come out, I want you to hit the gas. Now, if I told you that, and you allowed me to get back into the car, I've just made you an accessory. Is that true? Correct. I made you an accessory. But because I told you before I went into the establishment, I made you an accessory before the fact. Is that correct? Correct. Good. If, however, I told you, Joel, I'm going to go into the store. Um, I'll be back shortly. You say, okay, I'll wait for you, you said. I come back out of the store. I jump in the car, and I say, I just robbed the store, Joel. If you do not get out of the car at that moment or put me out of the car at that moment, I then have made you an accessory after the fact. Is that true? Correct. Good. Will any of the merchandise I stole become yours or mine? Uh, just for that part of time. In our possession. But are yeah. we the true owners of that, of what I took? No, not the true owners. We are not the true owners. So we stole it. That's what steal means. It isn't ours. Right? Okay. I right. made you an accessory to a crime, have I not? Correct. Either before or after the fact. Right? Right. How can I ever take possession of a land that was stolen from a people who did not ever have a treaty honored by the people that stole it from them? And then I say, I want to be a voter of stolen land? It means I'm aligning with the criminal against the victim. 
That's what that means. It means I am willing to take possession of stolen merchandise because I think I have a right to, because someone who stole it says I have the right to a part of it or I can participate in the legal system of adjudication against the people that I stole, that was stolen from, and now I become an accomplice to the thief. And that's what has happened. By the continuous of voting every two years, every four years, it basically... It doesn't matter. Anytime I vote mm -hmm. to participate in a crime, it makes me what? A criminal. If I'm an accessory to a crime, I'm a criminal. Doesn't matter how many people died. What matters is what the act is. Hmm. Now we want to argue the point. I have the right. No, you do not have the right to something that was stolen under any circumstances. It doesn't matter whether it's the land or whether it's a dollar bill. Because the ethics of the situation says exactly that. It is a crime to take something from someone else and to lay claim to it under duress. That's a crime. <laughs> It'll never become yours. Never. Now, you can enforce it with an army, as the cavalry did, or as an atomic bomb did, but that does never make it yours. And if you want to participate in that, that means you're not an honorable human being. So some of the criminal experiences, some of the experiences that we've had is because we're aligning ourselves with the crime and somehow believing that we're entitled to the riches that were taken. That's all that says. It doesn't matter what the law says. Because the law is lying about the ethics of having stolen something from someone else. And the natives of this country suffer severely because the Buffalo soldier assisted the cavalry against the natives of this country to take that which the natives of this country had in their possession for thousands of years. I think they call those uh, aristocrats of some sort. They kind of like organize that type of union to steal and plunder. Well, you can be called by a lot of names, but a criminal is a criminal is a criminal. <laughs> I could dig that. Uh, as you elaborate on that more, uh, now that the African is again tied into this Holocaust uh, scenario now mm -hmm. um, and not really being taken as a real face value. No comments are ever being uh, heard or thought of giving much respect. Uh, a black man's opinion is kind of like really non-existent in the everyday world, uh, international trade or anything like that. Um, given this, information now that you kind of like explained with us kind of like we're basically not kind of but for years participating in this uh stolen adventure um how do we kind of like wiggle our way out of that or, or do all about face now that this is kind of like taking this stronghold well you have to one of the things that i do as you know is that i work with young men who are younger than I, whether they are fathers or non-fathers, whether they're the children of men who are older than they, is that I work with young men to understand very simple ideas. And those ideas is that they have to have ethics, integrity, 
honor a sense of responsibility and accountable, be accountable for the things that they do. Now, if you cannot change the behavior of a person, you cannot improve the quality of their lives. So you have to have a sense of ethics, meaning that there has to be rules by which you follow, that which you will not go below, because you realize to compromise your worth as a human being to other human beings. That has to do with integrity. Integrity. You don't do things that dishonor you. You don't do things that cause other people pain. You do not willfully take things from other people that you know that is against the behavior of a responsible, ethical human being that is looking after the welfare of his family because every person is trying in their own way to survive and function. That's simple. That's not hard. Mm-hmm. So teaching ethics, integrity, honor, responsibility, and accountability is key to changing the individual. But individuals make up families. Families make up communities. Communities make up towns. Towns make up states. States make up nation. All of that begins with the individuals. If you improve the quality of reasoning and sane behavior, among the people that make up a community or a state or a nation. You will have a nation that operates in an ethical, responsible way, not only with each other, but also with other nations. Realize that this country is the only country that has dropped an atomic bomb on another group of people and did not have to do that. It is proof positive that the Second World War and the fight with the Japanese would have ended without having to drop an atomic bomb. But if you can drop an atomic bomb which disintegrates and evaporates people simply because you want to test the bomb, then you're dealing with a quality of reasoning that says we care nothing about humanity and certainly not these human beings. Build them. You'll evaporate them. If you invade a country simply because you think that country is going to do something different from what you think they ought to do, that is an indication of your insanity. If you take a people from their homeland and then make them and enslave them, that is an indication of your insanity. If you eradicate a people who own land, that's like going into the house, taking the family's house, killing everybody in the house and taking ownership of the house. That's insane. So we're dealing with the quality that results in people thinking it's okay to do things and developing codes of ethics that are consistent with their objectives. And if that's true, and if everyone does that, then nobody will ever be safe. But that is the nature of the Eurocentric line of reason that comes out of Europe into the fertile lands and the South that subsequently results in the enslavement of Africans across the world and the colonization of Africans across the world. And that's done on both sides. That's done in the Middle East by the so-called, quote-unquote, Arabs. And it's also done in the West by the so-called Europeans. And those two groups have given you two different philosophical viewpoints. One is Islam on the East. The other one is Christianity on the West. And both of those religious bodies have as their character of central figure is Ibrahim or Abraham. Because Muslims and Jews are children of Ibrahim. 
and their mothers is Hagar and Sarah. Mm -hmm. Now, that's point of historical fact born out of the document that everyone reads that is called the Bible. And the Bible is comprised of two documents. One is the Torah, the first five books of Moses, called the Pentateuch. The second one is the Old or the New Testament, and the combining of those two things gives you what is today called the Bible. Islam is 600 years younger, which comes out of the East under Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And that has been the, the yardstick for determining whether African people or other people can be treated fairly because those three books that I named, each one of those three books supports slavery as an ethical code within the books themselves. I'm glad you brought that point up. Um, because as we know, if you go through a couple of scriptures, uh, uh, there are a lot of scriptures in the Bible that, part, that, that uh, condone the white man to have slaves and basically almost do it with him as he please. That's precisely what I was just saying. Because that is an indication that the line of reasoning associated with what is considered to be holy documents is born out of the minds of insane human beings who give credence to insanity as if somehow it has something to do with justice. It does not. It has something to do with being crazy. One, one, the body of people have taken the idea of God and made God an insane creature who is jealous and cares nothing about his greatest creation, which logically, according to all the books, is man. I think and uh, treats, and, and treats the woman and treats the woman as if she's less than the man when she is the mother of the universe. One of the wonderful things about walking through Egypt when I was there, on mm -hmm. many of the ceilings, there's a, a a a replica, a painting, a mythological presentation of a female figure which covers the ceiling. And it shows that female figure with her feet on tiptoes and her hands bend over, touching just at the fingertips of the earth. Now, there's a whole lot of mythical symbology in that. But it says that the female is the mother of the universe. She's the creator of life. And she is the creator of life. She's not a lesser human being. She's a primary human being because she, an entity, let's say, or spiritual energy because she carries life. She makes it possible for everything that is male and female to be an occupant of a planet. And that doesn't mean, it, is, it doesn't matter whether it's a plant or animal. You must have a female construct in order for it, for life to be created. So she's the giver of life. But yet, within the biblical reference and within the Islamic reference and within the Torah, Reference, it makes the woman the abomination. That's insane. I, uh, I was going to say something, and I almost interrupted you. I'm glad I didn't, but uh, Thomas R. Duke, uh, I don't know if he's the founding father of the KKK, uh, but he's got a, a quote in here uh, where he's saying, God is white, and as long as God is white, 
we shall prevail over all other races. Well, and I think that's when, Christianity he's talking about. When one makes a stupid statement, one has to address it as a stupid statement coming from a stupid source that knows nothing about the something that he's talking about. And to give mm -hmm. that any more credence than that is to just give it credence unnecessarily because that's a stupid. That means that the something that he says he believes in, he's ignorant of. But recognize that belief and knowledge do not occupy the same space and cannot. Because belief outweighs knowledge most of the time. What people believe they will do, what they know, they will set aside frequently in spite of the knowledge and the fact of that something being true. Now, if proof of point, point of that, again, if I, if I don't, if you don't get out the car when I get in it mm -hmm. and you stay in that car, I just made you an accomplice to the crime. The fact is, you know, I just robbed the store. I just told you. I've just committed a criminal act. But if you sit there, then you believe that it's okay to stay there and to reap the benefits of my theft if you do not get out of that car, even though the fact says I just committed a crime. Can I say this without harm or file? File. That's it. Ignorance is a choice. Ignorance is an absence of information. The choice can be made after receiving the information to discard it. That is stupid. Mm. The ignorance is just not to know. That's all ignorance is. If you don't know something, a child is ignorant of how to fly a plane. That's just ignorance. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. That doesn't mean anything's wrong with the child. It just means the child does not know. That's all. So ignorance can get a connotation that, in fact, is not accurate because it has something to do oftentimes with the intelligence of the persons. Where intelligence will be low to the degree that a person doesn't know something. If it doesn't have the knowledge to fly an aircraft, you're just ignorant of the information that's required. But that doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means that you don't know the information that's required to fly the aircraft. You cannot adjudicate mentally or spiritually that because a person doesn't know that somehow something's wrong with them. It's not true. They just don't know. I want to touch back on something uh, uh, that also on your page that I kind of like found it uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, dreaming uh, beyond the politics of America, the advantage mm -hmm. of doing so and how to do it. Can you elaborate on that for me? Us? We, we must. The politics of this nation has nothing to do, nothing to do with the state of our capability to create the life that we want beyond the shores of this country. Only by buying into the politics of this country will we adhere to the pain and suffering and constantly struggle with it as if somehow it is the hallmark of human intelligence or capability. It's not. It's just a, a dot on a piece of paper that has 20,000 reams of information. It's just a dot. But once one convinces you that that dot is more important than anything that you've learned, then you're relegating yourself to the pain and suffering that you're willing to accept simply because you're trying to prove something that in fact is irrelevant. Your dreams and your desire and your capability exceeds anything that you've ever, ever, ever imagined. You have the capability to do unlimited things. It is not glued 
to whether or not this you are a Republican or a Democrat. And as long as you think that it is glued, then you're not you you won't progress. You can't. So in, in spite of that, too, uh, you say ignoring the lies, the laws of the Constitution basically are solely for the better and benefit of white America and its corporations that you were kind of like explaining with that three-fifths law. The country simply decided it wanted to take a land and it wanted to adjudicate that land according to a set of principles and ideas. But here's the, here's the inter- interesting fallacy of that. Mm-hmm. Your qualifications for being the best, the greatest administrator of a nation is that the person be 35 years old and they be born in the country, but they don't have to have any talent, skills, or knowledge above that. That's ignorant. That is ignorant of the fact that you're making an ignorant assertion concerning qualifications that doesn't prepare you to run anything. Anything. Qualifications 35. 35 is not a hallmark of knowledge, just an indication of age. To be born in the country is just simply the process of having been given birth in a location. There's no knowledge associated with that to run anything. You can't drive a car with just that. You can't, you would not allow a person to run a ice cream factory simply because they were 35 and born in the bathroom of the store. You wouldn't do that. But that is an indication of the level of intelligence of the quote unquote founding bandits in their effort to take something to their benefit. They did not have good sense enough in order to put sensible qualifications for the administrator, which is a subsequent president, to run a nation. That's insane. So what you're hearing in all cases, if you look very carefully, carefully Mm -hmm. at the structuring of the nation, in spite of the subsequent Articles of Confederation, which resulted in the Constitution with the idea that all men are created equal, and you have this wonderful document, i.e. of the Constitution, but yet within it, the administrator of it can be a Donald Trump that doesn't know how to fry chicken. Not to mention the fact that you're going to forgive all of the criminal behavior and unethical behavior that he displayed toward women and to the people that he owed money to, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to make it okay for him to have done that in spite of the fact that you have the information concerning his misbehavior. And then you're going to suggest that God sent him. That's another abominational viewpoint of a deity that you hold as the highest point of sanity. Your God ought to be your sanest inspiration, not your craziest inspiration. If you think your God's a jealous God, then you certainly have some questionable thinking to examine. Because that's an attribute that you do not want your daughter to have or your son to have. Anyone that's jealous, in fact, has an ineffective way of looking at themselves. And you're going to give that attribute to God? God ought to be, again, your highest point of sanity, ought to be the scale by which you are aspiring toward, not something that you need to be afraid of. If you are afraid of your wife or your son or your daughter, your children are afraid of you, that's horrible. This is your family. (laughs) They ought to care about you, love you, embrace you, be happy to see you, not be afraid when you walk through the door. 
I'm just saying, look at the sense of it. That's my only point. <clears throat> the criticism has nothing to do with the people. It has something to do with the logic and the frame of reference and thinking that's been given to people as if somehow this is a magnificent way to view life. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Let me read some let me read something to you out of another book Good. written by me. It's called Cynicism of Joy and the Ecstasy of Pain. Here's what it says. A fish knows nothing about water. So it is with a man that is comfortable with the insanity of greed, with hopes of conserving his wealth while drowning with joy. These are the traps of living in a world where the insane are the definers of the quality of human life. It is these definers, quote unquote, definers way of living that is the coarsest barrier of invisibility that must be traversed. So what am I saying? If the insane is giving, is defining what life ought to be, you will only have a problem. Why? Because you're not looking at what's in front of you. Why? Because you're believing that what they're suggesting to you is the most valuable thing to do when it, in fact, is the craziest thing that you could possibly embrace. I want to say to that, too, as well. You have certain scientific beliefs, as well as what we were talking about, various uh, passages of scriptures throughout the Bible that authorize the white man to delegate uh, the black man to the existence of a domesticated animal without intelligence and without a soul. Okay. Well, um, one that, would have a problem identifying something that one doesn't have, wouldn't they? If mm -hmm. you don't have a soul, how could you identify the soul in someone else? Because what indicates that you're absence of a soul if you think it's actually okay to incarcerate, murder, kill at another human being at will simply because they are of a different complexion or because they have a different land, we know who is, in fact, insane. It certainly is not the victim. It is the person who's perpetrated the idea that they have the right, if not the responsibility or the manifest destiny, if you wish, to define what is divine and what is not. Now, as the walls of this country seem to be crumbling down with this truth of knowledge that we're spreading here tonight and other various uh, people of influence throughout the world uh, that's tackling this as well, chipping away at it, trying to get it, you know, to crumble down. Um, with this, all within this, are we at a, a time period to withstand any, any backlash that may come from this? If there's anything that we if, if there's anything that we receive since we've been on this side of the ocean, it's been it's been backlash. <laughs> okay. Now if the point is, if we can lose, think about this. African people everywhere in the world has lost a relative of some kind to colonialism and to enslavement. There's not one person of African descent on this planet that has not lost relatives, not one, to colonialism or to enslavement, not one. So all of us have lost relatives, grandsisters, grandparents, 
children, great-grandchildren, triple great-great-grandchildren over the course of time to one form of colonial behavior precipitated by Eurocentric insanity. And if we can't call that backlash, then I don't know what to call it. Because there's, we have had the misfortune to misunderstand and to identify something logically that because it has a head and two feet and two arms and somehow it has a spirit in it that would prevent it from treating others in a particular way. But we find that that's not true. And that doesn't say all people are anyway. It does say that those who have perpetuated and those who supported and those who have benefited from it and have done nothing to change it are in fact accomplices in the crime that they say that they dislike. If you and I are crossing the street and we see an old lady being beat up and we do nothing to prevent that, then we are accomplices to the perpetuation of that criminal behavior because we did not do anything about it. So there are two kinds of crimes. There's one of commission, that is carrying out the act itself, and there's one of omission by not stopping something that you see that is unjust. And when a police officer see another police officer kneeling on the neck of a suspect, he's not committed a crime. He is a suspect until he's adjudicated in a court of law. Until that time, you only have one responsibility to protect him and the other persons, protect him and the other person, and prevent any further perpetuation of that crime. You are not to kill him. You're not to beat him up. You are to suppress his ability to carry forth any more crime, but you have to safely get him to a point of where he can be adjudicated for that something which he's accused of. But it's an accusation. It is not proof. Until proof is provided, the person is not to be adjudicated or further abused by the law enforcement officer. In math, uh, especially algebra, uh, you try to solve the unknown with the little that you have is known. Uh, with the little that we have now, um, as far as any structure that we are building, um, that little bit of uh, knowing or information that we have, um, the little businesses that are, are being um, sprouted out throughout the country, um, how can we take those known um, variables and solve the unknown of tomorrow and 10 years from now? Well, there's more information that we need. One of the things that we need to know how to do is think and know the difference between having thought and thinking. Because you have a thought is not an indication that you're thinking. It just means you have a thought. If you have no way of effectively adjudicating in your own mind's eye the, what is correct and what is incorrect, i.e. you cannot solve problems with the use of your mind, then you may not have sufficient knowledge to adjudicate anything. Example, you don't allow a child to walk across the street because you know the child cannot see the danger. Therefore, the child is likely to be killed or harmed because you recognize the child just doesn't have the knowledge. Well, I've seen grown children of the age of 50, 60 years old 
They don't have sufficient experience and or knowledge. That's why school is very important. But just to get academic instruction is not necessarily enough to solve problems. So if you have an unknown, you need to know enough to identify the unknown so that you can solve the problem that you're trying to solve. Not all problems easily make themselves obvious to you. In the case of math, quantitatively it's easy because you know what the rules are. You know what the principles are, logically. But note, wherever you have problems with geometry, trigonometry, calculus, it is just the fact that there are principles applicable to that particular area of math that you don't know. Once you learn those things and know those symbols and so on and so forth, you can solve the problem. But until which time, it becomes a total mystery to you. It becomes confusing to you. So there's knowledge that you need in order to solve a problem. If you're unable to solve the problem, then there's something that you don't know. Or maybe with something that you don't know, that you don't know. But once you find out what you don't know and find out what you need, you then can solve the problem. And anytime you have a problem, if you can't solve it, there's something that's not known. Doesn't matter what it is. There's something that you're overlooking or that you don't know or that you think you know that you don't know. And that's simple. That isn't hard. But you got to allow yourself not to know in order to learn. If you can admit that I don't know, at that point you can learn. But if you think you know, you can't. Would you say evolution came uh, when we, we began to share with one another? Like, uh, you got apples, I got oranges. I give you some of my oranges for some of your apples. And that's when the consciousness actually came about? Well, I think it depends upon geog geographically who is the we that you're talking about. You see, it's a mistake to believe that everybody looks at the same thing the same way. They don't. Cultures make a difference as to how people see things. Not everybody see an antelope as something that you need to kill or eat. Some of them see them as beautiful animals that need to have the opportunity to roam the planet. Not everybody sees a bird or an eagle as something that will attack you, or a wolf, for that matter. The natives of this country honored the wolf, appreciated the wolf, allowed the wolf to live. There are animals, for example, let me give you an example and you can check this out later, but there are animals that are called keystone animals. And look that up. You can find it. Keystone animals. Those keystone animals are the key stones to making sure that other things in the plant and the animal world actually continue to live. Now, so much so is that one of them is the bumblebee. If you get rid of all the bumblebees, there'll be species of flowers that will actually cease to grow. They'll cease to exist because of what the bumblebee transfers as pollen from plant to plant to plant in his effort to get pollen to make honey, that he also transfers seeds to other things that himself would not be fertilized without the bumblebee. So the bumblebee is a very, 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 very important keystone insect that prevents other kinds of things, including trees, which also other animals need, some trees in order to take off their horns and other things and so on and so forth. So look up this whole series, which are called keystone animals, that you cannot not have those animals if, in fact, you want the planet to stay alive. I was just watching an event last night um, on... Um, Apple TV. 
Apple TV talks about over the last year, there's something concerning the growth of the planet. Over the last year, because of COVID and the removal of people, i.e. in isolation, people in isolation staying in their homes, so entire cities where no people could function. In India, the atmosphere changed and cleared up so that people could actually stand on their roof and see the Himalayas or the Himalaya uh, mountain from their rooftop that prior to that, for 30 or 40 years, they'd never been able to see those mountains because the air was so polluted. But after three to four months with no human beings, human beings having to stay in the house, the air became clearer so that you could actually see the mountains. And that happened all over the planet. In a 12-month period, species of animals actually got better life, grew, including turtles, where turtles were dying because of the infiltration of human beings or trap was preventing the growth of turtles on the, on the beaches. In, 30, in, in, in 60 days, those animals were coming back and actually proliferating, that is getting larger, getting in greater numbers because of the absence of human beings. Because that's how human beings of a certain group in a certain area affect the eco ecological balance of the planet. Whales were doing better. Fish were coming back. The ocean's core was being cleaner. All because for 12 months, there were no human beings tracing around on the land. They had to stay in because of COVID. And that tells you that the planet truly can do better without humans than it can with them. Hmm. And it's capable of doing better without human beings. It's capable of doing that. It will grow because the planet is a living organism. It's not a dead body of dirt. It's a living organism. I want to touch on uh, some things that we was talking about like earlier in the week. Yes. Uh, especially that movie that you suggested uh, that I watched, actually. Uh, Goodbye, Goodbye, Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom. Yeah. Um, that movie is from 1971. Um, you yep. can actually uh, find it on YouTube free yep. and watch yep. it yourself. It's a, a, a little over a two-hour movie. Uh, yes. Uh, tell the people why you wanted me to actually get into that movie. Because it was one of the best representations that I've seen in a movie or a theatrical form would gave you some indication what African life was like during the early part of their forced migration and enslavement in this country. Even the things that you saw there as horrible and as, as painful as they were to watch, there was 20 to 100 times worse than that. Mm. Okay? So what it indicated that there were children who, in fact, if you remember the scene where every all of the uh, owners were dining at the table and dressed in their evening garb and feeding the young African children underneath the table as if they were dogs. Correct. Okay. Now those things happen. There were, there are instances where children, the bodies of young African children were put on the shores of, of lakes to feed alligators. 
Now, that wasn't in the movie. But there were other things, including the breeding of the breeding of African women by other forced breeders to perpetuate like like a cow or a chicken to get more chickens to get more to get more African babies because then you have a situation where they where the the plantation becomes self fortifying that you have women who are in fact pre- impregnated by other either slave owners or by others that they've chosen to impregnate them just like a stud um, horse impregnating another horse, that same thing was done with African men impregnating other African women to have more children. So those more children became self-replenishing to the plantation because in five years you had another child. In 10 years you had another potential slave that you could sell. In 20 years you had another buck. Okay? So what I'm mm-hmm. saying to you, that movie gave you the opportunity to get a slight indication as to how Africans have been treated in this country. That movie was filmed in Haiti. You said Haiti? Yes. Yeah, that's a that was a real interesting movie. I, I'm actually going to be watching that again, just to get just a little more in-depth into that, because I was doing a little research on some of those I gentlemen uh, and those ladies in that table. Uh, and I came up on one name, John Randolph or Roanoke. Uh, he no. by yep. own, he owns slaves through inheritance, and during his time, yes. um, he kept the slaves. But he died on the day of May twenty fourth, eighteen eighty three. Some of his uh, words were uh, of the guilt complex that he had uh, uh, during his at the time of his death. He had this like guilt complex where he was this he, uh, John Randolph. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the first guy that talks at the table when she gives him an opportunity to speak about slavery. Uh, yes. He said at the time uh, he was all for slavery, um, but he let his slaves go. He believes in freedom, but not equality. That's what I want to say. Let me correct myself. He believed in freedom, but not equality. He freed him slave. He freed his slaves at the time of his death, but it took them actually 12 years to be released uh, through, okay. uh, through litigation. Yeah. People then not that, mean, mm-hmm. that means we have a lying person. We just have a we just have a sophisticated liar. Hmm. Okay? There's nothing good about the fact that he didn't believe. Why are you why are you in ownership of another person? Why are you? And the fact that you've given permission to that is an indication where your ethics are not. Mm. Okay? That's all that says. That says that my ethics is so poor that I'm justifying my own insanity by saying what I'm saying, but it's in a polite framework as if somehow I am better than you if you continue to keep your slaves. Well, you don't own people under any circumstances. And the fact that you are owning someone is an indication of what your ethics are not. So that is not in any way a reflection of good behavior. Mm. I was thinking that too. Also uh, in there was uh, the lady that wrote the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. 
Miss, uh, uh, what was her name? Harriet. Uh, Harriet Beecher. Beecher, Beecher, Beecher Stowe, yes, yes. Uh, she wrote, and she only wrote the book based upon the fact that she had a, a kid that passed away and kind of like referred that to uh, slaves being stripped away of their newborn mm -hmm. babies at birth. And this kind of like propelled her to write these stories on the plantations of experiences that she had growing up or whatnot. Well, it's rather arrogant to believe that somehow you are entitled to do to other people what you do to other people for any reason. Okay, there's no difference between Adolf Hitler and Alexander the Great. There's no difference between those two people. How is it that men who inflict pain and punishment on other people and conquer and take from other people somehow are great men? How is that? What kind of insane criteria of judgment are you suggesting that when a country can take over another country, that takeover is an indication that the person who successfully did the takeover is a great man? That's a thief, a bandit, and a liar. There's nothing, there's no sanctity of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, for that matter, or George Washington, for that matter. None. I don't care what people think. What I care about is what they can prove. Can you tell me that it's actually okay to steal another man's house and then call yourself a great man? And if you think that because they wrote a document that somehow that document is saying it's okay to take land from other people and you think that those people are a great group of people, you're the one that's crazy. Because your evaluation of an obvious crime is that it's actually okay to be a criminal. But then you want to adjudicate against crime. You want to tell me it's illegal for me to find my own, my, my take my freedom back. It's illegal for me for me to do that. But it's, it's legal for you to incarcerate me against my will and beat the hell out of me and subject me to all kinds of pain and suffering. It's legal for you to do that, but it's illegal for me to find a way to get back home. I think and you're going to talk to me about freedom? I think that includes the U.S. Constitution as, as a, uh, a source of a document that you're talking about now. That it, 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 it proves what? The U.S. Constitution seems to fit that explanation of what you're saying now. That's precisely what I'm saying. I'm not alluding to it. I'm telling you this is a comic book declaration of stupidity on the parts of a body of people who wanted to steal something from somebody else and then justify their behavior. That's all that has happened. Now, the fact that it's turned out to be a country that has a lot of conveniences doesn't make it a great country. It means that conveniences are conveniences, but conveniences are not freedom, my brother. Not. The fact that I can go down to the corner store to buy ice cream at 3 o'clock in the morning is a convenience. So people come to this person, asked me today, a friend of mine who's an Italian, because why is it that people want to come to this country? He said, because there's conveniences here. There are conveniences here. There are a lot of conveniences here. There's a lot of food. I've been to Cuba. The people in Cuba are marvelous people, wonderful human beings. I mean, just characteristically beautiful people. Just, 
When I say beautiful people, I don't mean physically. Their hearts are great. They're wonderful, giving human beings. And they get free education and free medical care. Everybody. If you want to be educated up to a doctor's degree, you can do that in Cuba. Now, here's the one thing that Cuba did not have. Food. Mm. Food was very scarce. If you took a Cuban from Cuba to a Costco, stand behind him because he's going to faint. He's never seen that much food in one place in his life. I'm just telling you, it's true. Mm -hmm. Costco, Winco, Smith's, A&P, stocked with food up to the brim. He's never seen that much food in his entire lifetime. So what's missing is the convenience of food, access to goods and services. There's not a car in Cuba that's an American car that is older than a 1960 or 1959 automobile because the United States would not allow them to be imported into the country. But you're talking about ingenuity? You're talking about some beautiful old cars? Marvelous. I saw a 1932 Plymouth in Cuba. 57 Chevys in Cuba. Still running, beautiful. People keep them going. But not a new car. If, if I took my car, which is the 2003 in Cuba, it would be the talk of the island. If there's anything that 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 uh, that new on the island, nothing. Now, so what I'm saying to you is, convenience makes it possible for people to have beliefs concerning something because of the convenience. But convenience and freedom are not the same thing. The Cuban people have more available to them in spite of their pain because everyone can get an education. I went there and talked to children. I went to school. The children wanted to learn. A little girl who was seven years old walked over to me and says, can I talk to you? Of course you can talk to me. Well, I want to practice my English. And I asked her what did she want to do. She, what she wanted to do with her life, she could tell me. This is seven, eight years old. 13, 14-year-old children absolutely interested in their lives. The one thing they did not have was food. That was it. I want to I want to read something uh, to you from the uh, post traumatic slave syndrome book, Doctor Joy Grew. Yes, sir. Uh, in this passage, uh, she writes from a James P. Comer. The yeah. slave family existed only to serve the master in order to survive physically, psychologically, and socially. The slave yes. family had to develop a system which made survival possible under degrading conditions. The That's slave right. society prepared the young to accept exploitation and yep. abuse, yep. to ignore the absence of dignity and respect yep. for themselves yep. as blacks. Yep. The social, emotional, and uh, psychological price of this adjustment is well known. Yes. I bring that up to state the uh, the legacy of trauma. Yes. 
which that kind of like refers to. Uh, and kind of like as well in today's society where it's still apparent. Yes. It simply says two things. It says the mind can influence and that the mind can be influenced. You understand? Mm -hmm. The mind has the capability of adapting to a situation, no matter how difficult or tragic it might be. In its effort to survive, it will find the ways and the means by which to perpetuate that survival under the most dire situation. Yes. You will find you will find that people are so adaptable that under some most difficult situations they will find the means by which to maintain their lives in spite of the pain and trouble that they in, in they in, that they encounter. It's true. Now, when you when you look at that and you look at the adaptability of African people under the duress that we have we have dealt with. We've been fed garbage as food. It's called pork chops, ham, chitlins, <laughs> ham hocks. Okay. We've been fed, fed some of the worst possible food on the planet. We have generational dietary problems. That is why African people, when I was a kid, <laughs> I, I was born in 1944. Okay. It's a little while ago. Okay. When I was a kid, so by the time I was five, six, seven, eight years old, people were dying of strokes. I'm aware that I'm a, I become aware at this age that people are dying, right? Prior to that, I didn't know anything about it, but people were dying and they would die of strokes. I saw it as a child, that's the way people died because that was the way that most people died. And why were they dying? Because there were generational dietary discrepancies because we were fed garbage passed on from the 16, 17, 1800s into the 1900s where people were eating food and even that's true today. Health food is fairly new. Would you not think that all food would be healthy? Of course it should be, you understand? So when you look at the way that African children were trained to be compliant with what the adults were facing, and that carries on to the 2021. Till today, that's still true. Still true. If that weren't true, you wouldn't have the discrepancies in voting going on. Georgia and all the rest of some 40-something states is now trying to change the voting laws. For what reason? They don't want African people to vote. That's been going on since African people were here and achieved the idea that somehow they could vote. In 1964, when Martin Luther the King said he wanted Johnson to sign a voting rights bill, why is there a voting rights bill that has to be signed in 1964? Because whites were very diligent by trying to find ways for black people not to vote. The Black Panther Party, as an example, the Black Panther was a symbol of those polling places and voting places that black people could go to register to vote. That's what that symbol was. Huey <clears throat> Newton and Bobby Seale took the symbol and turned it into the symbol for the Black Panther Party. But prior to <clears throat> that, Kwame Toure was Stokely Carmichael, who was a good friend and, and cohort with Dr. King through the South and Alabama, 
use that symbol so that black people who could not read, but if they saw that symbol, they knew that that polling place was a place that black people could register to vote. That's how that entire thing happened. That generational link, that generational evolutionary fabric having to do with why black people had to adapt. You've never lived in the South, or if you have, but try to remember that in the 1940s, 1930s, 1920s, it was illegal in this city that you're in. In the 1950s, it was illegal for black people to be out after dark. Talk about Sammy Davis Jr., Carol Bailey, stayed in this city at the Harrison House in this city because they would not, they, the owners of the casinos and the hotels, they could dance and tap dance on stage, but they could not sleep in the hotel or eat. They had to leave. And right now, that's one of the biggest attractions uh, out here. Well, this is the biggest attraction out here in the country, uh, Las Vegas Strip. At one point in time that you explained where we couldn't even do anything besides a tap dance, sweat, and leave. My wonderful friend, Dr. Joseph Neal was a state senator for 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So much I missed my brother because he's just a wonderful person. His death brought tears to my eyes and I spoke at his memorial service because he was my friend. But he made it possible for many things to be built and many laws to be changed here so that African people could go and sit downtown, i.e. on the strip and have a drink. Can you say his name again? Joseph, Senator Joseph Neal. Made he that has possible. a book called He has a book called West Side Slugger. Read it. Wonderful man. Can you finish a, a quote for me? I'm I'm, I'm bring a quote I, up. I, I, I don't know if may. I can. I I may. I don't know. I, th I think you can. You sound you still you sound really really intelligent beyond that, but still in all, uh -oh. that means I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but this quote comes from um, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with this one. I'm gathering the pebbles of my genius from the garden of my imagination. Yes, that comes from my book. I died and came to earth. Yes. Can you finish that for us a little bit? <laughs> well, I will. I could. I could read it to you, but I'll tell you what it means. It's not a poem. It actually is the opening statement to my book because the book says I made a choice to come to the earth, and that choice that I made of pre-existence, that pre-existence is instrumental in being who I am today, because by having made that choice, I had to then do those things prior to coming here that made it possible for me to be prepared to arrive. And that is why I titled the book, I Died and Came to Earth. Because in order for something to begin, i.e. on the planet here, I had to then leave what I was to become what I am. So wherever there's a death, there's also a resurrection. So death and resurrection happens at the same time. You see, and that's important to realize. The universe operates on a cycle. It doesn't operate in a straight line. When you leave here, you got maybe 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 100 years to be here. It's a very short period of time. 
It's not a long time. Your mother knows you before you arrive. After you arrive and you make the choice to come with the assistance of your father, you will get to know your father later, but you know your mother early part in your life. So you have to die to the old you to become the you that you're trying to become. While you get here, you are to learn. You are to involve yourself in what it means to live here and to function here and to do the things that's necessary, not only to simply survive, but to grow here, spiritually grow, mentally grow. Take those capabilities which are unlimited and reach your hand into them and bring out of those capabilities the ability that gives you the power, the skill to then do many things according to your desire to achieve them. If you believe anything about God, then trust God's will enough to make it okay for you to be here so you can explore the capabilities that you have. But you being on your knees ain't got nothing to do with what you should be doing here. If you're not protecting your family, your son and your daughter and your wife, then as a man, you're not doing what you should do. Because your job is to be here to learn and to do the things that's necessary to proliferate your growth, your children, your community, and make it safe and honorable for you to do the things that you're capable of doing. But that means you got to find those answers. That's on you. Math doesn't come easy. It takes work to do it. There's no equation on this planet that's bigger than you solving the problem of how to live an ethical and honorable life. There's no equation. No math is greater than that. None. If you can't solve that problem, arithmetic ain't do you no, no damn good. It ain't gonna happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now we're coming to a close on the show, so yes, uh, we uh, we are happy and delighted to hear maybe a little, a couple of uh, passages from your book, if if any, in case. Again, you can um, uh, shout out that book title as well. Well, I'm going to I'm, what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to send you the cover to the book. As Please. I, as I promised, I, I only have a, uh, a somewhat of a, I have a situation where I have my, my hard drive failed in my computer and the information, my manuscript is being extracted. And I have other copies of it, but I'm trying to bring it to a close so I, in fact, can end up publishing the book. But the idea is to give people a pattern of understanding so they will think and think about the fact that they're here to be responsible for the activities that they create. You have the power. You have the capability. Use the capability and take that capability and turn it into ability to carry out the things that you fully are capable of doing. So your, your life as an individual, your life as a member of a family, your life as a member of a group, your life as a part of mankind, your life to be a part of other living things because you need them, and your spiritual understanding all of those things make it possible for you to be infinitely capable of living again and again and again, provided you take responsibility to put those things into action. And my book, I Died and Came to Earth, is just to give you some insight as to what that is and perhaps how you can achieve that in a very, very simplistic manner. But thinking is a key of that, not just having thoughts. Santa Claus won't do it. Yahshua ben Joseph coming back ain't going to do it. None of those things going to do it. But you have a responsibility to you to get off your knees and get the work done. Got to be done. You can't pray upon building a building. You got to build a building. Can you talk about your program, Sonship? 
Sonship is a program that was designed to improve the quality of life and relationship between fathers and sons. Since all males are sons, all of us are sons. We are the sons of our fathers. They are the sons of their fathers. We have a responsibility to heal the family. That has to begin with the male because there's no such thing as a single family household. Those are contradictory terms. Single family, no. There's no single parent in a household. A family is comprised of both a male and a female. If they communicate well, we're going to get a better child. If the child understands and respects and appreciates the ethics of his father, understands and honors his father, maintains a sense of integrity, he has to understand he is his father's child. The fact that father isn't home must understand, okay, father has to be away, but father also has to be there to protect and direct his son. So sonship program says, okay, boys have to need these leadership from fathers. Mothers cannot raise sons. They can raise boys. And if you talk to a mother, they'll tell you all the time, that's my baby. Well, when does the baby grow up to become a man? Fathers don't tolerate that. You got to learn to be a man. That education can only come from fathers. Sonship is about the business of helping young men understand the idea of taking responsibility, accountability, being ethical, being honorable, and having a sense of ethics and adhering to a code of ethics that says, I have a responsibility to my family and to become not only a brother to my sister or other brother, but I must learn to get beyond being a boy and just simply being a male. I must learn how to be a man. Hmm. Uh, can you give them the information on how to uh, maybe uh, view that website and maybe sure. ask you it's, any it's, questions? It's, it's called www. Yeah, it's called www.sons, S-U-N-Z as in zebra, S as in Sam, H as in Harry, I as in Idaho, P as in Paul, dot org. www.sons, S-U-N-Z, S-H-I-P, dot org. All right, and any last closing statements that you want us to leave with, uh, we will be inviting you back next week to be continuing this uh, conversation as this is a, a most enjoyable conversation for all to listen to. So we got to have you back next week. But any closing statements before we uh, head out the door that we need to cling on to till next week? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's the best closing thought I can offer you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> To talk with you, okay? Well, I do appreciate it as always, as always. Um, right. And again, we've been talking to Yusuf Rahman Suda uh, here in Las Vegas, Master Teacher. Uh, again, organizer of sonship.org. Uh, uh, you can reach him there uh, with any details in tonight's show. Um, you can also log into uh, Facebook and just uh, search uh, Yusuf, mm -hmm. Y-U-S-E-F-R-A-A, -A, I believe. If you want to write me, you can write me at sons, S-U-N-Z-S-H-I-P, at gmail.com. Thank you for that. Thank yes, you. Yeah. And again, uh, we will be having them on next week, but we will be tuning out tonight. So we want to thank you all for tuning in and listening uh, to our show. This is Make Me Free. You're listening to Joel Saiji, your host, along with Yusuf Rahman Suda. As our special guest here tonight, giving us a plentiful, plentiful information uh, that we should be definitely uh, researching 
uh, talking, having conversations with, uh, just to get something going on. Um, yep. More than enough time has passed. Uh, we need to start putting the, the what's that they call it, the rubber, the metal to the pedal, or the, make the rubber burn. pedal to the metal. <laughs> <laughs> something. It's time to start getting it moving. In any case, yeah. uh, we'll be having him back here next week uh, to continue this same uh, conversation and even more so. But and that'll be again at ten thirty. 10 to 10.30 Eastern Standard Time, which is 7 to 7.30 Eastern Standard uh, Pacific Time. But tonight we did a special segment just uh, for him. And again, if you can, tune in next week. And again, you can also catch our replays at otwtube.com for this show's replay. I'm your host, Joel Saji, with Yusuf Rahman Suda. We will be leaving you here tonight. And until next week, Peace. Thank you, sir. Hey, Yurima Karama here with a quick infomercial, and I have a question for you. Are you tired of social media outlets that block real content? I mean, are you tired of your favorite internet truth teller getting blocked or put in Fedbook jail? Tired of making a comment and the algorithm quickly deems your comment to be offensive and takes it down? I mean, are you tired of making a post and a fact check pops up, making it look like your info isn't accurate, and then it turns out that the fact check is actually the lie? Are you tired of seeing white people get by with racist commentary or post and they never get blocked, but unapologetically black truth tellers are always having their videos taken down? Tired of having to wait a month or seven days or 14 days for your favorite social media truth teller to get their page back up because white-owned social media outlet owners take their content down whenever they feel like it? Tired of black people getting on white-owned social media outlets and finding out that the outlet is making billions of dollars but you don't get one red cent of that money? Well, if you're really tired, then you should do as I did and make the switch. Yeah. Come on over to otwtube.com where your content and comments are actually accepted. Also, get the Eurema Karam app where you can stay up to date on real truth that lamestream media intentionally hides from you. Come on over to sites that accept you being unapologetically black. I mean, come on over to sites that love you being free to express yourself. This is why I took my aboriginal indigenous melanated ass on over to OTWTube because I recognize the importance of freedom of speech. I recognize that I would be doing my ancestors a tremendous disservice if I stayed a slave on social media outlets that want to dictate what I say and when I can actually say it. If you're tired like I am, then make the switch now to OTWTube.com and get the Yurima Karama app. Tap into the truth because that's what you deserve. I am Yurima Karama, and I approve this message. Flawed individual. Cindy Ashby Production. On the wake up.